We'll hear argument first this morning in Danforth versus Minnesota. Mr. Butler. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In this case, the Minnesota Supreme Court held that this Court had prevented it from deciding for itself which state prisoners can go into Minnesota State Court to raise federal constitutional challenges to their convictions. This is incorrect. A state court is free to fashion, the state courts are free to fashion their own jurisprudence as to who may raise a federal constitutional question in state court. In the context at issue here, state courts and state legislatures can make their own policy decisions about the costs and benefits of allowing state prisoners to challenge their otherwise final convictions based on new rules of federal constitutional Well, I, I suppose if the state of Minnesota really cared about this, it could have its own confrontation rule. Does it have a confrontation rule? The state constitution, Justice Kennedy, has a confrontation clause. Its jurisprudence on the confrontation clause, its own, is identical to this Court's jurisprudence. So, yes, theoretically, a petitioner could always go in and make a state court challenge to his state court conviction. Well, I mean, that, that means the state isn't necessarily tied in knots. It has, it has an option to do substantively what it chooses. The question in this case, Your Honor, I think, is that whether, is the question of whether it has to. Yes, a state prisoner can make a state court challenge to his conviction. The question is, does he have to? In this case, Mr. Danforth challenges his conviction under the federal constitution. Well, you, page two of your reply brief, the yellow brief. Uh, you take issue with the state, and you say the state is wrong. Uh, if there is a decision either way on the, the confrontation clause and it's questionable under federal law, we can review it. I can concede that's right, but that doesn't get you home. That's the problem. Well, you're, that is the problem. You're now creating a, a, a regime in which state courts are reaching questions that we said ought not to be reached for final convictions. Your Honor, that was the basis on which we decided Crawford. Your Honor, it's simply a regime under which the state court, as it can in any number of other contexts, can choose to consider the merits of a litigant's claim, the federal question. The federal question here is, well, there are two. In this case, it's whether federal law prevents the state court from hearing it. But the substantive federal question is whether Mr. Danforth's conviction violates the confrontation clause. And you think that our holding in Teague was that it did, but we're not going to let you out of jail? I think that You think that's really what we said in Teague, that even though your constitutional rights were violated, we're going to foreclose the remedy of habeas corpus. I, I, I find it difficult to believe that that, you know, any responsible court could, could make such a determination. Your Honor, the, what the Teague Court did was set up a procedural and a prudential limit on uh, a defense available to the state in the particular form that, of habeas corpus. That, that issue is, is not a necessary part of your case at all. But you're, you don't have to suggest that you could depart, you could do less than Teague. Uh, for example, uh, Griffith. You can accept that as a given because it doesn't touch your case. Isn't that so? That's correct, Your Honor. Uh, Griffith sets forth, as we see it, the minimum requirements of federal law, that a new rule must be applied to all cases that were pending when the new rule is announced. That's what the federal Constitution requires. Well, federal but rules don't have minimums and maximums. They have a rule. And as Justice Kennedy pointed out, you can have a state rule under the state Constitution that goes 
further. It, it seems to me that the state's determination to apply uh, Crawford retroactively must be based on a disagreement with this Court's Teague analysis, which refers back to the substantive elements of Crawford. So, in other words, the disagreement at, at bottom is a disagreement about how to read the substantive requirements of Crawford. Respectfully, Mr. Chief Justice, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think the disagreement, if there is one, is with this Court's policy decision in Teague to, uh, that, that the Court announced in Teague on to whether to allow such challenges. There's no disagreement as to the substance of Crawford or to the substance of the Sixth Amendment. Nobody's ever reached well, that Well, how do you point. apply? I, I understand your point. Teague has both elements to it. But if you're applying Teague, there are certain exceptions that are based on exactly what the underlying right is, what the Crawford right is. Is it a watershed rule? Is it something else? And the Court makes a determination as a matter of federal law on those points. And what you're arguing for is discretion in the state to disagree with those substantive determinations. What we're arguing for, Mr. Chief Justice, is discretion in the state to disagree with the general policy rule that, that a court will not consider a new rule when considering the validity of a conviction on, in, in Teague's case, habeas or in collateral Well, you say it, it's a general policy rule, but it may well, as in the Crawford case is a good example, have affected uh, this Court's initial determination uh, to strike off in a new direction. We did so knowing uh, that there's a possibility that they wouldn't, we wouldn't upset final convictions. Well, and, and I think and, and it and is the, a the right was limited. Excuse me to, to that respect. Is it not a substantive determination of federal law when you say that this constitutional change that we're making in this case, or that we have made in a in a past case, is not retroactive? That means there there was no constitutional violation in the past prior to the announcement of this case, and what the state. What, what you want the state court to be able to say is, yes, there is a federal constitutional violation for which we're going to give a remedy in habeas. I, I think, uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Kennedy, if, if I could address your, your points in turn. On Justice Scalia's question about whether there was or was not a constitutional violation, if the court is really holding that there was, that, the, that something that there was no constitutional violation at the time petitioner's conviction became final or at the time Mr. Uh, Bakhtin's conviction became final in, in the habeas case, then what the Court is really holding is that Crawford didn't just interpret the Confrontation Clause, it somehow changed the Confrontation Clause. That the Confrontation Clause meant that the Confrontation Clause said one thing at one point and now says something else. I think that's exactly what, what Crawford means, and I think that's exactly what happened. That's what it means, whether it's a new rule. What does a new rule mean? It means it didn't used to be the rule, but it is the rule after this case. Now, you can argue, and there are many originalists who would agree with you, that there shouldn't be such a thing as a new rule. But once you've, uh, once you've agreed that there can be new rules, if this Court says this is a new rule, we acknowledge it wasn't the rule before, but it's new, it will not have retroactive effect, it seems to me that, uh, that the State would be, uh, would be contradicting that, uh, that ruling by saying, oh, in our view, the law used to be exactly what you say it newly is. 
that the, the question, Your Honor. I take it your basic position is that we should not be making new law. We should be, we misinterpreted the law over the years, but basically this Court has no power to change the uh, text of the Constitution or its meaning. I guess Justice Scalia's position is we have all that power in the world. <laughs> I think that's our basic. My position is we have asserted all that power in the world. <laughs> but there is, there is, it's not as though we have a new rule and we apply it from this day forward. Crawford is retroactive, at least for cases that are not yet final. When they were on trial, Crawford wasn't there. But they may be somewhere toward the end of the appellate process, and lo and behold, they can take advantage of it. So, so I, it's a question of where you want to cut it off. And at one time, didn't this court cut it off at a different place? Yes, Justice Ginsburg, it did. In fact, for centuries, everything this court did was always retroactive, as, as the court knows. And then we got the link letter balancing test, and then later on we got Griffith and Teague, and the court is refined usually through the scope of federal habeas corpus. And during the period between Linkletter and Griffith, did state, if the Supreme Court said that a decision was not retroactive, did state Supreme Courts feel free to apply it retroactively? It, there, there doesn't seem to be any case law on that point, Your Honor, that I'm aware of. State courts usually, as they do today, usually followed this court's retroactivity decisions, but it's unclear whether they thought they had to or whether they just chose to. Can they, Question, can they pick... Can the state pick and choose? Can it say that we're going to allow Crawford claims to be applied retroactively, but other claims we're not going to? I think when it, it, if you consider, Mr. Chief Justice, that the Teague rule is a procedural rule about who gets to make what claims, then I think the answer to your question is yes. The state court could Well, say, and if you think the Teague rule is an assessment of the subs- part of the substantive constitutional interpretation, an assessment about what the impact of Crawford is versus other decisions, then I guess they couldn't, right? Well, it depends on the impact in what, in what setting, Your Honor. It, the, the, the Teague rule and Teague itself and every case this Court has ever, in which this Court has ever considered Teague, has come from one procedural posture. Federal habeas corpus review of state court convictions. It's over that posture that this court exercises both supervisory power and control to interpret the various federal habeas statutes. Well, even even outside of the habeas context, we we decided a case, uh, Hudson versus Walker, one or two terms ago. It was the no-knock case. Uh, we said that even if there's a no-knock violation, the exclusionary rule does not apply. Uh, this would be too costly an extension of the exclusionary rule and would bring uh, the, would make the Fourth Amendment a disruptive force. Uh, under your view, I take it the state, um, even uh, in, in its uh, trial proceedings, the subject to direct review, uh, could disagree with that and take a federal concept, no knock, um, and then apply the exclusionary rule, thereby forcing us uh, to make the, to draw the very lines that we said we ought not to draw in Hudson. Let me no, Your Honor. First of all, what Hudson the Hudson case asked was whether exclusion of evidence was required under the Fourth Amendment when the violation of the Fourth Amendment was a no-knock violation. The word required is appears throughout the opinion in Hudson. 
And the answer was, no, it doesn't. The Fourth Amendment doesn't require exclusion of evidence. But there was no suggestion in, in Hudson that the State Court could not then say, here's a Fourth Amendment violation. We need to come up with what the remedy is. The Constitution doesn't require us to suppress the evidence. And so we, re- we either choose not to. But, but you agree with me, then, that this, uh, under your position, the State could apply an exclusionary rule? Yes, Your Honor, it could, under State law. So and if based on the distinction between right and remedy, a distinction that is in countless areas of the law we, we've said is, is an ephemeral one. Well, it's not based on that distinction. That's one way to look at it, Mr. Chief Justice, that in, in the Hudson context, it's definitely a question of right and remedy. There was no question in Hudson that the defendant's Fourth Amendment rights were violated. The question is, what remedy is required by the Constitution? Here, Mr. Danforth wants the Minnesota State Court to consider whether his constitutional rights were violated. It did not hold that they were not. It held that it could not consider the merits of his claim because of Teague. And in other settings, this Court, in its other limitations on the availability of habeas corpus, has described these prudential rules, like Teague, as gateway claims. Mr. Mr. Butler, let me, this is a habeas case, but I assume the same issue could come up in in a direct appeal to the State Supreme Court. Is it your position that in a direct appeal the State can uh, determine to be retroactive constitutional rights that we have said are not retroactive. On direct appeal now, not habeas. As long, Justice Scalia, as the State acknowledges that it is using State law to do so, that it, use, that it is not mismanaging this Court's retroactivity jurisprudence. In other words, as long as it doesn't think, no, oh, I mean, we, it, bases we must its, do it bases its decision on the Federal Constitution. And we have said that this Federal Constitutional rule is not retroactive. What do they say on a direct appeal? On a, on a direct and, and my next question is going to be, whatever they say, when it comes up to us, what do we do? It would, it would depend on the facts of the case, Your Honor. I'm, uh, I'm confused on this point because I thought it was part of our retroactivity jurisprudence that the states uh, must apply that new rule while the case is still in the pipeline, while it's on direct appeal. Not that, not that they, well, they just may, but they absolutely must apply it retroactively. I thought that's what Griffin was. That, that is, yeah. Your Honor, what, what Griffin says, and that's, that's what that. My, my case was not in the pipeline. The prosecution began after our new decision, okay? And it comes up to the State Supreme Court. Can the State Supreme Court, despite the fact that we've said the decision is not retroactive, make it retroactive? And your answer is yes. My answer is habeas or not. My answer, Your Honor, is that if the If it comes up after the prosecution is after the federal decision, of course the decision has to apply. Yes, I think that's correct, Justice Ginsburg. The decision would apply if the prosecution starts after this court announces a new rule and then says it's not retroactive. When you announce that it's not retroactive, it's not retroactive to cases that are already final. If the case hasn't even begun yet, then, of course, then, then yes, then the new rule would apply. Does your, does your approach apply to legislative enactments as well? Let's say Congress passes a law and it provides a, a particular remedy and it says this remedy shall not be retroactive but only apply in new cases. Can the state say, well, we think it ought to apply to old cases uh, or pending cases on habeas or whatever, and so we are going to apply this retroactively even though Congress said it's only prospective? 
I think that's a, that's a somewhat different question, Your Honor, and it would, it would depend on if, if Congress uh, passed a law that said uh, no state court shall apply retroactively something or other. No, no, they just say here's a new remedy. Maybe it grants an exclusionary remedy in cases where we have held one that isn't required. Um, can the state uh, allow that retroactively, even though Congress, it's a federal remedy, even though Congress has said this federal remedy only, is only prospective? In the past, Your Honor, I think, I think the short answer to your, your question, Mr. Chief Justice, is yes. And I think the reason it can is because if you look at, for example, if this is a question of remedy, then I, then the state courts have all the power to grant more remedies. Well, to grant it more gets back to the, your reliance on this uh, ancient distinction between right and remedy. I mean, if, if you, Congress says you don't have a remedy uh, if it's retroactive, it's hard to say what kind of right you have. If, Your Honor, think about the, the tax cases, for example, American Trucking and McKesson, the case, the companion case. <clears throat> In both of those cases, especially McKesson, uh, the court held that where there has been a violation of somebody's constitutional rights and, there, and the state owes that person some sort of a remedy, then the state can give whatever remedy the minimum requirements of the federal constitution or federal law are, but can also go further. Sure, as a matter of state law. Yes. But here you're arguing in favor of retro application of federal law. There's no issue, as Justice Kennedy pointed out, you can have a state confrontation clause and do whatever you want with it. But you're relying on the federal provision. The, what, what we're relying on, we're relying, Mr. Chief Justice, on the substance of the Sixth Amendment, yes. That is the substantive claim Mr. Danforth makes. No, but you are also relying, as I understand it, on state common law, in effect. And you're saying that so long as the state common law does not give less by way of remedy and relief than the federal decision requires, the state is free, as a matter of state remedial common law, to do more. That's your point, isn't it? That is absolutely so my it point. Is, you're, you're saying that ultimately the state's choice in this case rests upon a choice of state common law about procedure leading to remedy. It's not even just state common law, Justice Souter. It's state statutory law. No, no, no. It's, it's, I would have thought the very least Teague is, is federal common law. In other words, this is the federal law of remedies. I think it's more than that. I think it's substantive constitutional, substantive federal constitutional law. But it's at least federal common law, and doesn't federal common law preempt state common law? Only, Mr. Chief Justice, if the federal interest is so strong as to outweigh all of the, the state court interests. And when it comes to the remedial question of does this person have a right to go to state court and challenge his conviction, that is quintessentially the matter of state law. Well, we that, that always that assumes that that's a remedial question and that the question is not, was the Constitution violated at the time this act occurred? That, if, if that's the question, then you acknowledge that the state can't change the situation. That's true, Justice Scalia. That if, the, if, the, if this Court is, it has, if Teague is a rule that says what the Constitution was at a particular time, then it is much harder for us. We would probably have to make a state law claim. But you can but say it's a little odd that the state executive can say, yeah, as far as we're concerned, we like the new law or what was always the law, but the court wasn't perceptive enough to see that. We like it. So we're not going to raise Teague. I mean, it would be an anomaly, would it not, that the executive of the state is not bound by Teague, but the courts are? 
That's, that's correct, Justice Ginsburg. And that's the waiver doctrine about Teague shows why Teague is not a decision about what the law was. I assume this, that the state executive can do that with respect to any federal law that it's authorized to, uh, to implement. Simply choose not to, couldn't it? That's prosecutorial discretion. No, Justice Scalia, respectfully, I don't think that's true. If the law at the time of Mr. Danforth's conviction became final said there's no confrontation violation, and we go to state court or federal habeas court for that matter, and the, the state chooses to say we don't want to apply Teague, we'll take him on on his Crawford claim, that under, under a view that the law has changed, that allows the state executive branch through waiver or even worse through procedural default inaction to change the substance of federal law. You want us to write an opinion which begins with the sentence, uh, this court has no interest in the extent to which its constitutional decisions upset final judgments. No, Justice Kennedy, I don't think that's what the opinion should start with, and I don't necessarily think that that's true. I don't know that there's no interest in, in much of anything in this case. When you weigh and balance the interests, however, the interests of the state courts in controlling access to their courthouse doors, in reviewing the, their own judgments. I mean, Teague gets back to a comedy decision. Whatever Teague is, it's based almost, not, not exclusively, but primarily on comedy and respect for state courts. If, Federal if courts Crawford are not. Been, if Crawford had been a decision of the Minnesota Supreme Court, is it clear what retroactivity rule they would have applied? No, Justice Alito, it's, it's not. Uh, the state court has used in the past the link letter balancing test. It's also used something akin to Teague. And then in this case, they, they held for federal rules, they have to use Teague. Mr. Butler, if, if as you say, uh, uh, Teague is, in effect, a comedy rule, then what is your, your answer, in effect, uh, to Justice Scalia's point that we make a decision when we come down with a substantive uh, uh, legal judgment about the Constitution, we make a decision as to whether the rule is retroactive or not. And he says that if you look at Teague as simply, uh, in effect, a comedy decision, that's inconsistent with the determination that we have made, because if you say, okay, we as a state will apply it earlier, uh, then the feds say we have to you, in effect, are changing the substantive determination that we have made that the decision is not retroactive. What is the retroactivity analysis that underlies your comedy analysis of Teague? The, the retroactivity analysis, Your Honor, when this Court makes a decision is, as Justice Ginsburg suggested earlier, Griffith. The Court says when it makes a new rule, when it announces what it believes to be a new rule, that it knows that it will apply to a certain group of cases. It doesn't know, it can't know anything more than that, because the court doesn't exercise control over the All right, let's be more specific. Courts. What does it know about retroactive application under Griffith? That it will apply. And it will apply to some cases that depend upon facts and, in even, and, and have eventuated from trials that are all That are already finished. Right. Yes. So that there's going to be some retroactivity. Yes, absolutely. And if there's going to be some retroactivity, then I take it your position has got to be, and is, hmm. that our substantive decisions are not so much retroactive or non-retroactive, but retroactively applied to some extent 
and not retroactively applied to others, and a state is free to apply it more retroactively than ours. Is that, that the, the nutshell? That is the gravamen of our argument, Justice Souter. So, the so decision- your answer to Justice Scalia is, I take it, not that the decision is retroactive or not, but there is a decision about the degree to which application will be retroactive or not. That is what underlies your case. That's correct, okay. Your Honor. And, oh, and you, the, then do you think the state is free to decide how and when and whether it will, quote, apply? I mean, simply to ex- ex- separate the law from the application of the law seems to me no answer at all. Is there any other area where, where you say, well, yes, the, there was a Supreme Court decision, but whether to apply that decision is up to the state? Well, that's we, the, we the, you're overlooking that. what I understand to be the basic distinction you're drawing. I know the Chief Justice has cast doubt on it, but I think there is a basic distinction between rights and remedies. And you're holding, you're, I understand your position to be that the remedy may not be retroactive, even though the, the decision itself can assume that there would have been a violation from the beginning of the Constitution today. We may have misinterpreted before. But if there's a violation of the right, then there's a decision about what kind of remedy shall be imposed. And you can say we will not impose a remedy for past wrongs, even though we must impose in the future, and we can let other states decide whether to impose a remedy or not. That's totally consistent with the holding that if there's a the violation is always retroactive, but the remedy may not be. I think that's correct, Justice Stevens. And when, when you talk about remedy, well, no, it's Your exactly Honor, the other way around, which makes it problematic. You're going to say the remedy is retroactive, even if there's no right. You're going to say it, where, where we have decided that there is no remedy, and therefore, if you have a right, it's I don't know what you get out of it. Uh, you want to say no, there is a remedy. What, what I want to say, Mr. Chief Justice, is that if there is a violation of the text of the Sixth Amendment Confrontation Clause. The, this Court decides what remedies are required, what remedies for certain people, and perhaps for other people, what remedies are not required. Justice Harlan in Mackey called it the, the, the body responsible for dis- defining the scope of the adjudicate, what he called the writ, in other places, the adjudicatory process. In this case, it's, it's state post-conviction review. That it's that body that decides whether there shall be either a remedy, or you want to call it a remedy for the violation, you want to call it who decides whether the decision shall be applied retroactively, as opposed to whether it is retroactive. It's the group, it's whoever is controlling the adjudicatory it's process. Subject to the flaw, that the flaw subject. that this Court sets, it must be retroactive to a certain extent. That's correct, Justice Ginsburg. Subject to the floor, it is then up to the, to the governing body to decide how much protections to give. And that gets back to Justice Stevens's point. The states can always choose to give either, you can call it a greater remedy, you can call it a larger retroactive application. As long as the substance of federal law doesn't change, then it is a state question. It's the same as the question whether to apply the exclusionary rule. That it was is. a remedial decision. There was Everybody agreed the knock-and-announce uh, uh, business was vi- a violation. The only question was on remedy. And there are lots of rights for for which there's no remedy. You look at all our implied cause of action cases, you'll find many, many examples of that. In in habeas corpus as well, Justice Stevens, if, if if you file your habeas petition one day late, no remedy. If you don't preserve the issue in the trial court, no remedy. So you have to argue, and this is why I think the distinction has been rejected in so many other areas of the law, you have to argue that the remedy question is totally separate from an analysis of the right. 
Correct. Because otherwise you are saying the State courts have the right to disagree with our determination of what the Federal right is. If you think the remedy, the question of remedy, draws some substance from what the right is, which I would have thought is obviously the case, then it seems to me you're asserting a power on the basis of the State court to overturn our Federal law determinations. We, we are not asserting, Mr. Chief Justice, that the State Court has the ability to disagree with this Court's interpretation of the Federal Constitution. What we are asserting is that the State Courts and the State Legislatures have the ability to decide who can come into State Court and what claims the State Court can listen to. And I wanted to, before, before I run out of time, I wanted to address Justice Kennedy had a concern earlier about uh, knowing the scope of the, of the application of a right when you announce a substantive decision. And the answer to that, I believe, is that the Court, not only does it already know it's going to go, it's, it, it will apply to anything pending on direct review, but that's, that, that, that question is much more complicated than it seems. Different states have different timelines for when something is pending on direct review, how long it takes an appeal to pass through the state court process, what requirements of the defendant are there. In Minnesota, it takes about 15 months to run a direct appeal. And so a defendant can, can sit there for 15 months and know that he's probably going to get the benefit of any decision this court announces. In another state, it might take two years. In another state, it might take six months. There are different groups of defendants, even under the Griffith standard. We already don't have the sort of uniformity that the respondent thinks is so, thinks is so important in this area. There's always, things are always left to the matter of state courts to, to decide to have their own procedural rules and to decide how best to, uh, to use their adjudicatory processes. And all this court can do is announce the best federal rules it thinks the Constitution supports have some idea of what the minimum requirements of those rules are going to be, and then it is up to the state courts to decide what other remedies to give for the, for the violations that the, if this court holds something as a violation, then it is up to the state courts to decide as a minimum who it will apply to. If there are no further questions, Thank I'll reserve Mr. my time. Thank you, Mr. Butler. Mr. Diamond. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Federal law controls the retroactivity or non-retroactivity of new constitutional rulings. This court determines the constitutional requirements and that apply. Just at the outset, when you use the term retroactivity, are you saying there was no violation of the Constitution before the decision or there just was no remedy for it? Your Honor, I think in this, this court has made it clear in the retroactivity area that retroactivity is a question of the substantive constitutional standard that will apply to a specific defendant. I think the court's cases from Payne, Griffith, well, uh, Yates. One of the cases where the, the line is drawn when the, the expiration of uh, direct review has passed. Is it your view that at that particular point in time, a constitutional violation either exists or does not exist? It's not a remedy question? That's correct, Your Honor. I don't believe this is a matter of remedy. This court, for example, in Reynoldsville so, Casket, wrote that Teague itself is not a limitation on remedy. What it is is a limitation on the principle of retroactivity itself. Right, that's part uh, of that because of what's involved in expectations. That, that's the Smith case, where we said the determination of whether a constitutional decision is retroactive is every bit as much of a question of federal law as the decision of the substantive right itself. We said that at Smith. Yes, Your Honor. The point is that the substantive rights and retroactivity 
are not two different things. And here the expectation, in Smith it was the expectation of, of, of people in the private sector. Here the expectation is one of finality of judgments. Exactly, Your Honor. Then how, do you, how do you reconcile that answer with the point that your brother made just before he sat down? And that is, taking standard Griffith analysis, the application of a so-called new rule is going to vary depending on how long it takes a, a person on direct appeal to get through the state court system. Uh, and it seems to me that that is inconsistent with your view, that there has got to be one rule with respect to the date of application as a matter of substantive federal law, because we know for a fact that depending how long it takes to get through the state appellate system on direct review, the new rule may be applied and it may not be applied. Your Honor, two points. First of all, I think Griffith is very clear that finality is that point. Griffith is very clear, and it defines finality as that point when the direct appellate process has run and this Court's and the opportunity to petition this Court for review is over. Secondly, Banks II, the case, the retroactivity case from this Court, says that it's up to the Federal Courts to define finality. You'll remember in Banks II, there was a question of whether the Pennsylvania courts uh, 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 passing on waiver requirements somehow destroyed the finality. uh, I understand your your point about finality, and finality uh, has a a well-known operative effect. But one operative effect, uh, when the federal courts have defined finality, uh, and have said it is not final until a case is not final, until direct review is over. One consequence of that is that a substantive federal uh, rule will be applied to an individual in one state uh, whose crime and whose trial procedure is different in time from that of a defendant in another state. So that the consequence is that the substantive rule will apply to some people who acted on date X, and it will not apply to some people who acted on date X. And that, it seems to me, is inconsistent with your answer to Justice Stevens's question. Your Honor, given the varied proceedings at the state level, th- th- that, that is inevitable no matter what time this Court And proceeds. if it is inevitable, I don't see how you can answer Justice Stevens's question the way you did. Your Honor, the point in Griffith is that in terms of uniformity, this is, in terms of providing similarly situated people, the best the Court can do in this area is to cut the point, to to make the point at finality. And and the finality point, in effect, establishes a, a way of calculating the application of a rule in any given state, in any given case. But it will not result in the uniform application of the rule. Isn't that correct? Yes, that's correct. You have to say that's correct. But I think you can also explain that the I, reason it's correct is the Court probably would have liked to say, yes, we're making up a new rule. The Constitution didn't used to say this. And this rule will apply from now on to all actions taken by individuals from now on. But then, you know, Justice Harlan says, my goodness, you're, you're going to give relief to this individual and not give relief to other individuals who are making the same claim and already have cases pending? You have to treat them equally. So we will make an equitable exception for that. 
But basically, uh, the, the existence of that exception does not prove that uh, the Court was not purporting to make a substantive rule. There's an exception to the application of that substantive rule for pending cases, which is uh, totally understandable. Which, which, Your Honor, is Griffith and is defined by federal law. Can you give what? me an example of a case in which this Court candidly said we're announcing a new rule which was not the law before? Wasn't it — aren't we always interpreting what we thought the intent of the, of the uh, uh, framers was from the beginning, even though we may have gotten it before? W what is your best example of a new rule in the sense it's a different rule of law as opposed to a different remedy? See, all of these equitable considerations go to the remedy. But the notion that we can make up a new rule of law on, at will strikes me as a very dramatic departure from what I understand the rule of law to require. I'm really glad to hear that. <laughs> Your Honor, I think the, the point, this, this isn't Blackstone. Blackstone is not the only view here. The point is that finality is, a, is not a competing concern, but but the point that, that is a condition for fashioning the right remedy. There's no doubt. Everything you say is necessary for treating litigants in a, in a fair manner. But that's all it goes to remedy, not to the violation. Don't, don't do, do we think the new of settled expectations as being questions of remedy? Excuse me. It, it seems to me that your, your 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 answer to Justice Souter's question earlier should be that there is uniformity. Um, some states, they are fast, some are slow. But in the end, there is a final judgment, which is a settled expectation. And the substance of the law honors settled expectations, which is finality. Your, your Honor, the, and that point is, a, the point of finality is a recognized point of what is necessary for the integrity of judicial decision-making. That's sort of like defining order as random order, isn't it? I, I disagree, Your Honor. I think, as Justice Harlan said in the, in the Williams and Mackey dissents, there is a, a, a decision that is always subject to revision is really the functional equivalent of no decision at all. Mr. It's what makes judicial decisions judicial. And, and, and the concern is a concern uh, not so much for the defendant here, but for the states, isn't it? We don't want. We think there is there, there is a an important value implicit in habeas. In one of those values is that there be a limit to the degree to which we are going to upset the settled expectations of the states. Isn't that right, Your Honor? The, the state's interest here can be vindicated by the state by applying state that's law. Not the, that's not the point. That I thought that Teague was driven not by some abstract notion about finality, but the intrusion on state decision-making. Here was a state that had conducted an entire process that appeared to be in line with what the federal law then appeared to be, and then the state is told by some federal habeas court, state, you've got to do it all over again because you didn't you didn't predict that we were going to interpret the constitution differently i thought that the really motivating idea of teague was its address to the federal forum and said federal forum don't step on the state's toes don't make them redo trials that have 
long since been over. Your Honor, I'm here representing the state of Minnesota, and the intrusion that I'm concerned about in this case is a state court judge adopting some uh, federal uh, optional sort of federal requirement and applying it as opposed to using state law that can be reviewed and overturned and, and for which that state court judge is accountable to the citizenry. Well, I, I, I must say that uh, I, I have serious problems with your position in that regard. If, if you were not to prevail in this case, and, and um, uh, or, or, or pardon me, if, if the petitioner were to prevail in this case, and there were a ruling on, on what Crawford means or doesn't mean, we could review it. I think the petitioner is absolutely right on that point. Your Honor, I think it's difficult. Uh, if you look at, for example, the recent case of Minnesota passed, Kraski, dealing with essentially the same evidence that's at issue in this case. If, if the state was adopting Kraski as some state standard, then this court wouldn't be in a position to review it. If it's adopting Kraski as, as, a, as the federal standard, then the question is, how is it that the state is adopting something as a, as a matter of the federal constitution that is not a federal constitutional requirement? The, the, the question I have is, to go back, you said two separate things. One is you say the question here is a matter of federal law. I'll give you that. It's a matter of federal law. But the question is, what's the content of the federal law? Does the federal law say to the state, state, if in a collateral review provision, uh, proceeding, you want to apply Crawford retroactively to people whose convictions were long ago, do it. We don't care. And a lot of Teague says that should be the federal rule if it's called a federal rule. But then you've said a, a different thing in answer to Justice Stevens. The different thing was, but the substantive rule of Crawford only takes effect as of the day of Crawford and into the future. Now, on that position, or take any other date you want, as of one year earlier or whatever you're going to pick there. Now, if you're right about that, you win. But how could you be right about what I call there a metaphysical point? Because on the metaphysics, as Justice Souter just pointed out, Imagine three people who have three identical trials each one year before Crawford. The first person is called Crawford, and he wins. The second person is called Smith, and he's delayed forever in the appeals process. And the third person is called Jones, and he gets a quick appeal, convicted in jail at the time of Crawford. Now, we know that the first two Crawford applies to. But metaphysically, if the law of Crawford was the law at the time of the first two trials, why wasn't it the law in terms of what the rights are in respect to the third person whose trial was held at precisely the same time? Your Honor, the point, I think, is this is this is the point that Griffith makes, that when your conviction becomes final, that, that your, your stake, if I can call it that, in changes in the law come to a close. Oh, I, I suppose that. metaphysically, I said, this Court has no power to enunciate new constitutional rules, metaphysically. But we have done so. 
and Teague is full of references to new rules. We therefore hold that implicit in the retroactivity approach we adopt today is the principle that habeas corpus cannot be used as a vehicle to create new constitutional rules of criminal procedure unless those rules would be applied retroactively to all. The, the opinion is full of new rules. So, retro, so you know, we, we, we have violated metaphysics already, having violated it in, in, in adopting new constitutional rules. Why should it be any surprise that we also violate it in the application of those rules? should be no surprise at all. Don't get hung up on metaphysics, Mr. Turner. But in Crawford itself, it seems to me there was quite a bit of attention given to history long before the original interpretation of the clause. I guess that was unnecessary because we were just making up a new rule. Is that the the If you've adopted Justice uh, Justice Scalia's approach through your silence, then I'd ask you (laughs) whether, whether, whether there isn't just a simpler explanation that doesn't require us to go into Spinoza, Immanuel Kant, or even Aristotle. And the simpler explanation would simply be what Justice Stevens started with, that Teague is about remedies, and that we assume that the law was the law at the time of Crawford's trial, at the time of Smith's trial, and at the time of Jones' trial. But Jones is knocked out because he went to habeas. And that's what Teague is about, habeas. And therefore, if the state wants to apply Crawford retroactively and let everybody out of jail, that's their problem or their virtue. That's up to them. Now, that's, that's where Justice Stevens started. And that's what I'd like to hear an answer to. You wouldn't want to say that, Mr. Turner, because that would place you in the position of saying that what we are telling people in these T cases is, oh, yes, the Constitution was violated, but we, but we don't want to hear about it. I mean, that, that's the alternative, to acknowledge that the Constitution is violated in all of these T cases, some of them being capital cases. And we nonetheless say, well, too bad, it's on habeas. I, I like to think that that's not what we're doing. That, that what we're saying is this is a new constitutional rule. There was no constitutional violation before, and that's why we're letting it stand. Your Honor, you're handling these questions very well. <laughs> <laughs> that was not a question addressed to you, Mr. Dunn. <laughs> Your Honor, I think that in terms of Teague as a remedial limitation, First of all, I don't think this Court's retroactivity jurisprudence at all supports that notion. I also think, for example, um, while, while certainly not directly at issue, in the habeas area, in, in, in construing habeas, this Court said that Teague was not so much about a standard of review as it was about the standard that applies itself. And, and so I think it's very difficult to square the notion of Teague as a remedial limitation with this Court's retroactivity jurisprudence. It's also difficult to square it with the explicit rejection of that notion in American Trucking and in Harper and in Reynoldsville Casket. You do recognize, though, that one of the propelling forces behind Teague and why we changed from the link letter regime 
was respect for state courts' processes and a resistance to the heavy hand of federal habeas courts telling states what to do. It seems a little ironic, then, if you take an opinion that was driven by the feds staying out of the state court's territory to say, oh, no, we're going to tell you that uh, it's it's not — we we control when we want to. Your Honor, certainly that was one of the things that was going on in Teague. But respectfully, I think the question, it's every bit intrusive, uh, as intrusive on the state process when a state court judge applies a new federal rule to overturn a conviction as it is when a federal court judge does the same thing. In other words, those comedy concerns apply regardless of forum. In what you're saying is that the concern in Teague was not only with state court processes, uh, but with uh, settled expectations of those who are involved in the criminal system, particularly victims, uh, who are entitled at some point to rely on a conviction being final. Yes, Your Honor. I don't and think we don't usually think of just of settled expectations as being questions of remedy. We consider those as being questions of substance. Your Honor, I think if you look at Justice Harlan's writing in T about the post-conviction, what should be the rule for post-conviction, you see he lays out very eloquently what those concerns are in terms of of finality and uniformity in the post-conviction arena. And what I'm saying is, is that those concerns, certainly comedy is a concern, but those other concerns in, in terms of finality and allocation of judicial scarce, scarce criminal justice resources and, and what kind of a trial are you going to have 11 years after the fact? Is it going to be more fair than the trial that occurred in the first place? But the all those concerns apply. The state executive can upset all those expectations. The state uh, executive says, I want this, the, the issue, the substantive issue in this case settled, so I'm not going to raise tea. And so, so the Crawford is going to be retroactive because I say so. It is a bit of an anomaly that the prosecutor has that power, but not the state court itself. Your, Your Honor, first of all, I think the state court is in a business, is in a different role. Uh, in terms of enforcing the constitutional rights in that in that situation, in fact, as it relates to the constitutional rights, it's difficult to see what state interest a judge should be vindicating at that point. The it's also to difficult be- to see what federal interest is vindicated when the state says, "We know we have to uh, respect this, call it what you want, new precedent." in cases still in the pipeline. And we don't have to if the case has reached a final judgment. But not required to doesn't say can't even if you want to. Your Honor, that brings me back to the point where I started, which is that the Constitution doesn't — remember, we're using the Federal Constitution here as authority to do something that, for example, in this case, the Minnesota court would be otherwise unable to do. This defendant never raised the state law claim under 
never had — this defendant never raised his state confrontation rights. So in this proceeding, the Minnesota court would bar him from raising his confrontation rights. Let me take the other point of view, which is Justice Scalia's, which I think I understand now. Imagine that the Crawford begins to take effect as of the day of the decision. No law like Crawford before. But for practical reasons and reasons having to do with courts, we let certain people take advantage of it. We let person A take advantage of it, Mr. Crawford. We let person B take advantage of it, who's on direct appeal. We don't let people in habeas take advantage of it. Why don't we let the State take advantage of it in its, in its uh, collateral proceedings if the State wants to? For, exa- for, for reasons of, of federalism, for reasons that they can do what they want, uh, for reasons of it's going to be the law in the future anyway. Your Honor, my point is the State can take it, the State can do that as a matter of State law. The problem is with, with allowing a State to, to extend a Federal, uh, the Federal standard here is that the Federal standard under T and under Griffith, but mainly Griffith and Wharton together, in this case, define what the constitutional requirement is, what constitutional standard this petitioner is entitled to. May I ask another sort of basic question? The Teague rule is a federal rule. The Teague rule. What is your understanding of the source of that rule? Is it a a court's power to announce, make federal common law, or is it a constitutionally mandated rule? Your Honor, I give you one other thing so you can cover it all at once. And if it were not a judge-made loop, but rather it was a statute, and it did, and it goes beyond uh, regulating federal habeas corpus proceedings and affects state court proceedings, what provision in the Constitution would have given Congress the authority to enact such a statute? Your, Your Honor, um, let me interpreting it the way you interpret it. Try the first question, and then we'll see where we go. The, I think. The, the source of, of the authority for Teague is, frankly, the same source of authority as it is for Griffith. And, and the same source of authority as in Griffith. And Griffith talks about, the best I can do for that, is Griffith talks about it being grounded on basic norms of constitutional adjudication and the integrity of the judicial decision-making. Um, which all applies to the federal system. But where does the authority to regulate the state system come from? Your, Your Honor, I disagree in terms of that that all applies only in the federal system. In, if you look at, for example, the civil cases, American Trucking, Reynoldsville, um, and Harper, they talk about that same um, basic norms of constitutional adjudication applying in the state forum as well. Uh, I'm sorry, there was a second part to your question, which was, in terms of Congress being able to uh, amend or modify Teague in some fashion? No. Where would Congress get the authority to require state courts to follow the rule, the interpretation of Teague that you're advancing in this court, that they must, they, they may not go beyond the, the decisions of this court? What, what in the federal Constitution authorizes the federal government, either judges or Congress, to tell state courts that they cannot do what the, your opponent argues they should be able to do? Your Honor, I, I don't believe that that's what's going on in the federal habeas statute. I think this court has said that. I agree, but when you're talking about what federal courts can do in administering the federal habeas statute, I have no problem. I'm asking, where does the federal authority to tell state courts they cannot do what your opponent says they should be free to do? Your, your Honor, I guess my source of confusion with your question is, I, I don't understand Teague as a rule from Congress. 
I understand Teague as a rule of this Court in terms of describing what the Constitution, what constitutional standard applies to what defendant. In federal and, habeas corpus proceedings, yes. Your Honor, that's where the point of disagreement is. I think Teague does many things. But one of the things that Teague does, and frankly, not just Teague, the whole retroactivity jurisprudence of this Court, Griffith and Teague together set up a coherent whole. Griffith pre-finality, Teague post-finality, <coughs> and, and it's the process of this Court saying, you, this defendant, enjoy this substantive federal right, you, this defendant, enjoy the substantive federal right, that was active at the time your conviction became final. Protection that's supportive. But why, what in the, what, why can't they provide more protection? What, what, what federal rule prevents that? I just understand. Your Honor, I think what's, what the problem with it is, is, is in the constitutional design itself. In, in terms of the Constitution provides requirements. If you look, you don't even have to get into Teague. Griffith and Wharton together, Wharton saying Teague's exceptions don't apply to Crawford. Those two cases together basically say the state's requirement to provide this new constitutional rule ended when this defendant's conviction became final. At that point, that is the constitutional requirement. The constitutional design, then, is that states are not free as a matter of federal authority to exceed that requirement. They may not rely on federal authority to do that. Just the same... uh, they can certainly do it as a matter of their own authority. But the Constitution, for example, this defendant having waived his state claims, having not raised them, the Constitution doesn't allow the state of Minnesota... Supposing there's a knock-and-announce violation, they don't want to apply an exclusionary rule, could they apply a remedy that will fire any officer who does this? Or would they say, no, you can't do that, because it goes beyond what the federal Constitution requires? Your Honor, I think if that, if that remedy is grounded in state law, the state of Minnesota could certainly do that. But I don't think they could rely on the federal constitution to fire any officer who does that. Could it, could a state say, we know that on federal habeas, the Fourth Amendment is out. Stone v. Powell says when it's, when you go through the direct process, that's the end of your raising search and seizure claims. Could a state say, well, we know the Fourth Amendment is binding on us under the Federal Constitution, but we think that we should extend the Fourth Amendment right not only to cases on direct review, but to collateral review as well. Federal habeas courts can't do it, but could states? Your Honor, I think the answer to that is probably yes, and the reason is different, though. The reason is the state, we're not changing the right that the person is entitled to. What, we're cha- what you're changing, that is, that is the remedy and right question again. And, and what, what I'm saying is that what T, Griffith and Wharton together say, that this person's constitutional right, the right that he has, was fixed when his conviction became final as opposed to the case where you, that you're postulating, which is the question of, yes, the state's going to recognize the Fourth Amendment right in post-conviction. The, the right, the content of the right itself is not changed in that instance. Mr. Diamond, let me ask you a question. 
Let me ask you a question which is totally uh, off the, the point of, of the Federal Constitution, I guess. Uh, that is, if Minnesota really wants the rule that you want it to have, its legislature can provide that that will be the rule, can't it? Minnesota legislature can pass a statute saying uh, nobody gets more than Teague allows. Your Honor, I don't think the Minnesota legislature could, could go into the pre-finality Area. In other words, the Minnesota yeah, legislature, the Minnesota legislature say, look, uh, the, 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 the Supreme Court of the United States uh, has, has come down with some rules. We won't characterize them as minimums or anything else. We'll just say it's a set of rules. It's called Teague. And Teague is going to be the law for the application of federal rights in Minnesota state courts. Uh, is, 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 can the Minnesota legislature do that? Your Honor, I think in that instance, the Minnesota legislature, I see my time is up. But I think in that instance, the Minnesota legislature is, is providing the minimum that the Constitution requires. So the, so answer, the answer to that is yes. Is yes. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Diamond. Uh, Mr. Butler, you have a minute remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, two quick points in my, in my one minute. On finality. The state court can weigh the, benef- the costs and benefits of upsetting the finality of its own convictions. Its convictions rendered in state court and appeals rendered in state court. It can decide, as several states have, that the interest in full adjudication of constitutional claims outweigh the interest in finality. The question in Teague was whether the federal court could decide that for the states, and the answer is no. But the states can decide that for themselves. On Justice Souter's point about what, or somebody's point about what the source of authority was, Mr. Diamond said it was basic norms of constitutional adjudication, and that is the phrase used in Griffith. That phrase is a minimum. The basic norms of constitutional adjudication require the following. They require application of new rules to pending cases, even though the conduct had already, had already happened. They don't require anything more than that, and we are not here asking the Court to hold that they do. We are simply asking the Court — I see my time is up. Why don't you finish your sentence? (laughs) We are simply asking the Court to hold that if the State wishes to go beyond the minimum, they are free to do so. Thank Thank you, you, Mr. Butler. The case is submitted.